This past December, Rabbi Miriam Grossman stood in front of a crowd of people gathered in Columbus Circle in Manhattan during Hanukkah. Together, we mourn the brutal murders of 1,200 Israelis and the kidnapping of 240 hostages. And we grieve the horrifying mass murder of over 17,000 Palestinians in Gaza, which includes unspeakably over 7,000 children. Today, the Palestinian casualties are much higher. At the time of recording, over 28,000 people in Gaza have been killed. At least 12,000 of them are children. Today is the 130th day of the Israel-Hamas war. 130 days of horrific violence, of devastation and atrocities, broadcast to our social media and television screens. Rage and grief have brought thousands of people to the streets en masse to demand a ceasefire. One of the many groups that's mobilized in the U.S. around that call is Rabbis for Ceasefire. The group formed in October of 2023. And today, 275 rabbis have joined in opposition to the war. Miriam Grossman is one rabbi for Ceasefire. How do we keep going? How do we keep going for Gaza? How do we keep going for mutual safety for all Palestinians and Israelis? How do we keep going for all of us here? How do we keep the flame of our shared humanity alive? We act. We act and we do not wait for hope. We act and our actions draw hope closer back to us. Rabbi Miriam Grossman is no stranger to the team that makes Unsettled. In the fall, she married Max and his wife Morgan. A few years ago, she led a shiva for my dad, Zichron Alivracha. And I, Max, and our co-producer Emily have all attended high holiday services at Kolot Chayinu, where Miriam was the rabbi until recently. Miriam has ushered us, along with many others, through life cycle moments of all kinds, highs and lows. That's what many people rely on faith leaders for. But not only is this moment one of the more horrifying times, at least that I've seen, but it's also a collective wound that so many are feeling. What does it mean to be a rabbi for ceasefire? And what does that mean while so many other rabbis are standing in lockstep with the state of Israel? Where in Torah does Miriam find the call to participate in Rabbis for Ceasefire? In December of 2023, I sat down with Miriam to ask her some of those questions. So I've always known you as a rabbi who is involved in in Palestine liberation work. Can you tell me how you came to it? I came to it um, a little bit of a windy road. I grew up with a very... I would say, right-wing Israel education. I grew up in a Jewish day school. My father was a rabbi. I was very close with my grandmother, who, as a small child, had survived a pogrom, and that's how my family wound up here. So I think for me, the seeds of my Jewishness, but also the seeds of a commitment to facing oppressive violence and conditions, the conditions that produce and allow it felt very interwoven with my Jewishness. 
And there were a bunch of different moments that were sort of seedling moments to my looking back and facing what I had believed and what I had been taught as a child. One of them was eventually a relationship that I had um, with a with a friend from college who's Palestinian. And I just began to see in some of her stories and experiences of um, not being safe and not feeling safe, I could see my grandmother and I couldn't see myself. And I think it's a very dangerous game once we start comparing and, and saying this is equal to that and da 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 So not, not saying it that way that what my grandmother experienced was like what this friend experienced or vice versa. But I think it was a bridge to beginning to, to looking at the course of history in a way that's total, in a way that doesn't deny my grandmother's experience and then doesn't deny my friend's experience as I had really been taught to deny her experience. Up until October 14th, you were the rabbi at Kolot Chayinu. October 14th was the week after October 7th, the Hamas attacks. Um, and that was that was your last day at Kolot. And you gave a sermon that made me cry. And uh, I'd love for you to read some of that. Sure. Today I need to keep my humanity. And today I need to keep going even without hope, because hope will come one day. I make a space for hope to come. I'm going to prepare her a beautiful room. I'm going to lure her towards me. I set a table for her arrival through action, through not turning away, through joining with others in mass to make change, by taking care of myself and others, by grieving and witnessing others' grief. I set a table for hope to come and sit by living with radical compassion. I make her a place at my table and she will come and sit there with me again one day. Maybe it's just not her time right now. Yeah, I still can't listen to that without tearing up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you for those words. Um, well, before I ask you how those words feel today, I want to go back to October 7th and how you experienced it and how the experience of, of that day led you to those words mm -hmm. and to focusing on hope and its elusiveness. I mean, it's hard to answer. It feels like it was such a blur. Like a lot of Jewish people who have relationships with a broad range of uh, Jewish community and who also are passionate about Palestinian freedom, um, it meant that that time, that whole week, was it was a different thing to suddenly know people who were in mourning who were Israelis in mourning and, and to also suddenly um, see people who I knew, if not people I knew closely, but who were, who were making genocidal statements. I, I think I'm saying that's what I felt maybe somewhat naive about, that I hadn't really grappled with the extent of what would be unleashed and what was already there. And at the same time, to begin to understand uh, what what was already happening to the people of Gaza, what was already dire and extreme condition of siege, um, that the bombing had already begun in those days, that children were already dying, that people of all ages were being murdered and were, were sort of struggling to survive under rubble already, that all those things were true. And it felt like looking down a well, like it was unclear what the bottom would be. 
And it was clear that it was just death all the way down. Holding all of those things at once, um, that's what was sort of the backdrop of that sermon. And I think I focused on hope because I didn't have it. You know, this question of what is going to be the fire that fuels that engine of sustained strategic collective action because it can't just be a sort of spur of the moment feeling. And I think I felt afraid of what I would do or not do or what others would do or not do without hope. And I just started thinking Jewishly that it's always meant a lot to me that Jewishly, ritually, you don't have to feel necessarily a certain thing in order to do the ritual that's required of you, even in a high stakes emotional moment. And how often that action is the gateway to feeling. And then the sort of machine starts rolling. I wonder if you experience this. There's something that's been happening for me since October 7th that makes me uneasy. What I see from people who love Judaism like I love Judaism is that one can interpret it and see it and use it for any worldview or, or agenda. And I want it so badly to be something that points us towards shared humanity and justice and love and and I I can see it being used for something that I see as something totally different than that. Yes. Do you experience that? It is. It is being used for that. It is being used for that. It is fully both of these things at once, you know? It's hard I think also to talk about what's happening Jewishly because step 1, stage 1, square 1 is just we are witnessing an atrocity funded by the United States that the international community, with some exceptions, is largely like allowing to go on, which is to say that um, the bigger conversation is about the whole world and the West and specifically about a sort of bigger right-wing political lobbying project agenda that is bigger than the Jewish right and the Jewish left put all together, you know? Just because sometimes I think Jewishly... Um, I don't want to get trapped in just having like the one conversation in the room I'm in about us. That being said, I am a rabbi <laughs> and <laughs> am obviously interested about what is happening Jewishly. And I, I really struggled when Netanyahu made his statements about Amalek, um, this idea of this sort of like biblical tribal enemy of the Jewish people that attacks from behind and that then the Jewish people have to annihilate. He was talking about Hamas and his words were slippery. And I think the implication was obviously the people of Gaza and the Palestinian people, period. And that was a terrifying genocidal implication to make like plainly for the world and I think I just as a rabbi heard it so much more loudly I felt like my ears were ringing with this horrible use of Torah and I just kept thinking I don't learn Torah from a corrupt racist supremacist warmonger that's not where I learned Torah 
but it is happening. I can't say that that's not Torah that's being put on the world stage by someone and that people are agreeing with. Meaning I can't just say that's not Judaism because that is his use of it right now. Judaism is nothing if not a changing tradition. It is an evolving lifeline. And there has always been living tension as ancestors before us have like wrestled through what this tradition what, what it would be and become and what would survive. Um, and so for those of us who want to pass forward a Judaism that is life-affirming and that is liberatory, it's just on us to keep reclaiming it. But it's not only people in power like Netanyahu who are using the Torah to justify continuing the war. In November, hundreds of people gathered at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., where many chanted, No ceasefire. And in December, over 700 rabbis signed an open letter opposing a ceasefire. For a lot of Jewish people, the idea that we've had this centuries-long connection to the Holy Land is one that now looks like support for the modern state of Israel. I put that to Miriam. I think the very, very, very first thing is we can have a real and, and hard and important conversation about Torah and about Jewish history, and about diaspora, and diasporas, and we can have all these conversations. The first conversation before all that is, what are the human rights violations that are happening on the ground? Torah is many things. It is a tree of life that animates my Jewish life, my spiritual life. It is not a modern legal document that we are all looking to for our human rights specificities <laughs> to talk about what is in Torah over talking about clear stated observed human rights violations is a misdirection so that's the first thing I would say to that is um let's look at international law you know I think the second thing I would say is I think to to look to Zion and pray is uh Zion theology. That is to have your heart animated by a relationship to a spiritual past and by centuries and centuries of people holding that same relationship. That is not the same thing as a modern political ideology. And you can say that that ideology is in relationship to that theology and to say that, yes, of course, Jewish people for centuries and for generations and generations have had a relationship of love and sanctity and looking with awe towards Jerusalem is not the same thing as a state where Jewish people have rights that other people do not have. That one's not in the Torah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, so so but you you have been working together with a group of rabbis called Rabbis for Ceasefire and I would love to hear how that came to be and what that work looks like and, and how you're feeling in it. Yeah. So Rabbis for Ceasefire is a sort of ad hoc group of, of rabbis organizing together really across um, movement denominations. I think one of the things that's really beautiful about it is that it's both rabbis who've been involved in this work for all of their rabbinic lives, their whole rabbinate, and then rabbis who this is the sort of first time they're taking action in this way. And I think, I, I just think that's really powerful. And I think now is a moment that needs everyone. 
and that calls for everyone and how can we organize ourselves in ways that um, open up the maximum call really um, and not sort of hewing ourselves into really tight categories and, and then wonder why we're not in even more mass movement. So I've been really inspired by these rabbis who've many, many have been taking action, you know, long before I was and many who are taking action now for the very first time. I think the real core of rabbis for ceasefire is two things politically first is that there is no military solution there's only a political solution and so ceasefire to us as for many people is a sort of shorthand that means de-escalation that means intervention by the international community um, in israel palestine to address these broader conditions uh, what i n n speaking as myself here not as rabbis for ceasefire but conditions that i would call apartheid uh, in addition to occupation and siege but to sort of see that as part of the call of the moment to address the the instability and the crisis period and that ceasefire also means a full negotiated hostage exchange prisoner exchange of everyone for everyone really i think the call of rabbis for ceasefire is um number two also rooted in a torah of life we were talking before about sort of uses of torah that are violent i think our primary um, core anchoring Torah itself is the idea that pikuach nefesh, this rabbinic obligation to save a life above all else, uh, is the call of the moment. And so the call of the moment is that ceasefire is immediately, urgently necessary right now, today, every hour to save as many lives as possible right now. And that it is also urgently necessary for the future because every day without a ceasefire pushes us further and further and further into an even more entrenched and possible future. So pikuach nefesh is for now and for the future. And as part of that sort of call to life is also the idea that every human being is created in God's image and that what we are witnessing that is a desecration of God's image. And that October 7th was a desecration of God's image. And then we have seen an unthinkable, an unthinkable number of human beings have been murdered since then. And it's not just that they have been killed, it's that they have been killed in ways also that are desecrations. And that people dying under rubble is not death with dignity. And many of the Israelis who were murdered also did not die with dignity. And it's just all true at once. It's just all true at once. And I think the call of the moment is to say we will fight for life in the biggest sense, which means we will mourn all of these deaths. We will mourn the Israeli deaths. We will mourn these Palestinian deaths. And beyond that, we will say that this system of occupation, apartheid, and siege is a system that yields death. And that the call to life and that to see it as a Torah of life, a life-giving Torah, a tree of life, is to fight for life, is to find a political solution that centers life and centers life with dignity above all. On November 13th, the day before the March for Israel, I watched the first Rabbis for Ceasefire public gathering via live stream. It was for Shacharit, the Jewish daily morning service. That's morning like AM, not morning like grieving. But at this particular Shacharit service, there was a lot of room for that too. In addition to prayers and song 
and sermons and reading Torah. The service was outside, in front of Congress in Washington, D.C. Attendees were surrounded by banners made to look like Torah scrolls with the Hebrew words, B'Tselem Elohim, and in English, all life is sacred and precious. I remember seeing rabbis outside of Congress. You know, I, I am a person who's deeply involved in Jewish life, and I have been called directly an anti-Semite. Yes. And so for me, seeing rabbis wrapped in talitot and holding Torah and calling for a humane solution and end to violence, for me, it was just, it was just so powerful to be able to feel like my Judaism is my own. Amen. Amen. I mean, and the truth is it's it's emotional, but it's like it was, um, that's why we did it, you know? And I think, um, I just, ooh, we were, we were praying outside and it was a full chakrit service, full Torah reading. I just remember looking around at one moment and thinking, you know, it was beyond nominations, beyond even exact political affiliations, even beyond exact political affiliations on this issue. And that um, I remember looking around and thinking, my God, these are some of the greatest rabbinic minds that I've ever had the privilege to learn with and to pray with. And some of the people who most moved me to tears in their davening period. And I just kept thinking, I can't believe all these people are alive at the same time. And then thinking that they're all alive at the same time and they're all called to stop this right now. I have um, a colleague, Rabbi Salem Pierce. She reminded us that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel went to D.C. during the Vietnam War because he said, I can't open my seat door. I can't open my prayer book to pray without seeing napalm balms on children. When I open the seat door, I see napalm balms dropped on children. And she said, that's why I've come to D.C. because I can't open my seat door and not see bombs falling on Gaza. And we did pray. We did open our sea doors. But to say we're going to open our sea doors and we're going to not deny what's happening, we're going to we're going to publicly with all our might and all our force in our davening name what is happening and demand that it stop. And demand that it stop happening in our name and with our tax dollars as American Jews in addition to as rabbis. I hope that it only continues to all get bigger and bigger and that there are more and more rabbis, more and more Jewish professionals, more and more Jewish people, in addition to more and more Americans and more and more people all around the world who can really understand that safety is, um, it's not one people's safety over another. It's all of our safety together collectively in every single place that we live. And that's just the truth. And that's just the only lasting enduring safety is mutual and total safety. Do you have a stated target for in Rabbis for Ceasefire? Is the target policymakers? Is it other Jews? I think the target is all of these things um, spoken differently. I think for policymakers, it is to say that the Jewish community is not a monolith, that there are not just um, Jewish people, but rabbis who represent um, each of us so many Jewish people and Jewish communities that stand against what's happening. Two, I think there has been this desire to um, 
energize and catalyze and speak to American Jews who feel like they don't have rabbis right now or they don't have a Judaism that speaks to them right now to say this can be a source of grounding and inspiration in your life and that it doesn't have to be, but that it's here. And so, for instance, we've we've had gatherings. Um, Shloshim is when you mark 30 days after the death of a loved one. And so we had a month of daily Shloshim gatherings after uh, 30 days after October 7th. That was sort of a rolling gathering to learn Jewish values about ceasefire that various rabbis led every day. And we're offering pastoral counseling and care for people who feel like they need a rabbi right now. All of this is tending to our collective Jewish present and future. And at the same time, we're just, we're very rooted in action. You haven't been a rabbi, you could correct me if I'm wrong, in, in, a, main, in like a mainstream establishment Jewish world. Um, but I'm wondering if, if you do ever feel some opposition or if you feel, um, if, if it's challenging to be a rabbi. Oh, sure. Sure. I think I have tried to build and keep a lot of relationships, frankly, with the mainstream Jewish world. And I'm hanging on. <laughs> I'm hanging on. I'm hanging in, you know. Um, it doesn't mean I've not heard things that are really painful or sometimes in bad faith or sometimes ugly. But the truth is that's not all I hear. And I do have these relationships that feel like people um, can hear that I'm coming from love and stay in it with me. I don't think everyone is obligated to try to figure out how to hold those kinds of relationships together. But for me as a rabbi, I do think I have taken on some degree of relational commitment to both love and serve the Jewish people, including people who disagree with me. And so just I, I think probably there are a lot of Jewish professionals that are struggling with what does it mean to sort of publicly say, I love you and I care about you and I disagree with you and I'm not going to stop and I'm not going to stop my obligation and commitment to lead, to serve, to love, but that that's going to include a call for us all to collectively change. What would you say to, to a young rabbinical student or an early rabbi who would like to say something about speaking out for a ceasefire, but maybe they're in an institutional Jewish space or, um, or they're scared for their position in the Jewish community? Yeah. yeah. I would say, first of all, I'm sorry. And I don't know if it'll be okay. Like, I don't know if you will lose something and how much that will cost you. And I'm sorry for that. I would say that the more you do it, the easier it is because the less you have to think about it. <laughs> and then when something is lost, there is also community and possibility that surrounds you to sort of hold you in the wake of that. That doesn't mean it's easy, but I do think that the more of us do it, the safer we all are together. I would say also for rabbinical students, you know, now is the time in a different way. There's certain risks you can take that you can gauge step by step as you go. And I would say to longer term rabbis, if you were saving relationships 
to push on people in in hard times. I'll say I'll say this one day. I'm going to have these relationships here for one day. I'm going to be in the room to change things from the inside one day. I would say one day is now. One day is right now. If you've been waiting, then have a little faith. The hardest step and the hardest time is the first. So let's do it that first time and then keep going. I don't always feel hope. I don't feel hope every day. What I feel is love and obligation to my own Jewish child and love and obligation to the children of my Palestinian friends who live in Abu Dis and Azaria. And from that place, the only choice is to fight for mutual lasting safety and to never, ever give up. Starting tomorrow, February 14th, Rabbis for Ceasefire, together with other faith leaders, activists, and artists, will embark on a week-long pilgrimage for peace. They'll march from Independence Hall in Philadelphia to the White House to urge President Biden to call for an end to the war. The music you're hearing now is from the musician Ali Halpert. You also heard this Ashrei tune that Ali composed in the clip from the Rabbis for Ceasefire Shacharit service. In the next episode of Unsettled, we'll talk to Ali and premiere her new song that speaks to the present violence in Israel-Palestine. Unsettled is produced by Max Friedman, Emily Bell, and me, Alana Levinson, with support from Asaf Calderon. Additional music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. For more from Unsettled, follow us on Instagram at unsettled underscore pod, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. <laughs>